It's very good to be here. Oh, it's on. I'm, gra- I'm glad I operated this thing correctly. You know, you never know whether it's actually going to work. Everybody's church has a different system, and sometimes they have you put one over your ear. And, of course, by the time I put on hearing aids and glasses and bad that thing on there at the same time, I get lopsided. I'm... falls over a little bit. But I'm very, very glad to be here. This church is a fabled church. In other words, it has got a reputation in the entire conference for being a strong witness for the faith, not just here in Davis, but all throughout the conference. And it's very much of a privilege to be asked to help you a little bit this morning. So I brought a sermon. Actually, I brought four sermons It's um, when you don't preach that often and you get an idea, you expand on it and expand on it, and pretty soon you've got the makings for four sermons rather than just one. But don't panic. You're getting a short sermon. It's um, It's not four sermons, really. But we'll try and pack in some things here. I've been a big fan of your pastor for some time, too. Kelly was one of the officiants at my daughter's wedding a number of years ago when she was the associate pastor at First Church Sacramento. And she gave to that occasion an address on marriage, the like of which I have never heard before or since. It was absolutely astoundingly good. And... um, I've known her in many other ways, too, but I wanted particularly to call that to your attention because it meant so much, so deeply to me and to our family. Okay, I want to start this morning's uh, um, look at spirituality, yes, again. I want to start it with Mendelssohn, Felix Mendelssohn. Friday night I heard his overture to Midsummer Night's Dream, um, You know, that's the uh, series of pieces in an overture that concludes with the very famous wedding march, um, without which many people would refuse to get married. Um, And it was very, very well done by San Francisco Symphony. And it's based on, of course, the Shakespeare comedy that includes fairies and elves and a donkey and some amateur players and a couple of young in-love couples It's brilliant, but light Shakespeare. It's brilliant, but light Mendelssohn. You know, he wrote it. He wrote it when he was 18 years old. That makes him more of a prodigy, at least from the production standpoint, than even Mozart. He wrote many, many excellent pieces before he was 20. He also wrote, considerably later in his life, an oratorio on the life and prophetic ministry of the Old Testament figure Elijah. I think I still have everything here. Okay. I first heard that oratorio, sang it in college, and was struck at the time with the great and deep tragedy of the prophet, whom he portrays when Elijah is praying to God to take his life from him because Elijah considered his prophecy a failure. This is not suicide in this story. He's actually asking God to kill him. And the music captures the sadness and the sense of worthlessness perfectly. 
But the truth of Elijah's life lies elsewhere. Elijah doesn't see what God sees. He doesn't observe the whole of his life the way God can. Elijah is zealous for the Lord, as the saying goes, of course, but he's not very good at at evaluating his own behavior, his self-knowledge and its value. Elijah learns to know his own personal truth from that point on because now at the bottom of his life he is ready to hear, ready to let go of his self-made barriers to understanding ready to drop assumptions and just be open to God. And it is at this depth point that Elijah becomes totally spiritually mature, as the narrative bears out. This is truth. This is Elijah's truth. Let's let's look at truth for a moment here, briefly. Truth is not always dependent on verifiable facts, is it? Now that's Maybe a radical thing to say in a university town, but let's, let's, uh, let's look at it anyway. Let me illustrate it with Aesop's fable. And by the way, when I preached the, the 830 service, I told this Aesop fable wrong. And in between the service, at the education hour, I got the correct version told to me, and so now I'm going to give you the correct version. This is a fable about uh, the lion and the mouse. You may have known about this. And this lion captures the mouse one day, and the mouse begs to be let go. Who knows, but someday I may be able to do something for you, says the mouse. And so the lion says, all right, it's just a mouse, I guess. Go ahead. And so the mouse scampers away. And then sometime later... The lion gets caught in a net that is designed to capture him, and what will happen to him as a result is anybody's guess, but it's not going to be good. And the mouse comes along and says, I can help you. I can return the favor. And he nibbles at the net and nibbles and nibbles until the net is open and the lion can escape. What is truth here? Well, for starters, mercy and kindness supplant fear, danger, and mistrust. Good. Okay. Do we dismiss this truth because we know that lions and mice can't talk? No. Do we dismiss it because the story is implausible? No. The truth stands regardless of, but also considerably amplified by, the story of the lion and the mouse. Truth. Truth about mercy and kindness. Verifiable scientific data style of truth? No, beside the point. Back to Elijah. His truth lies in complete trust in God, only arrived at as at here in the middle of his ministry as a prophet, not before. He becomes a worshiper of God in truth and in spirit. He is a totally spiritual man at this point in his life, maybe never before this point, and surely not always and forever all the time in his future life either. Elijah is a spiritual man, nevertheless. 
Are we ever totally spiritual? Maybe, maybe, but probably not. Not all the time, at least. I'm not, surely. When someone says to you, says to me, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, what do they mean? Is it a signal that they don't want the conversation to go any further? Is it that they've been put off, excluded, hurt by religion, even insulted, dissed, as some say? Is it that they prefer their beliefs to be fuzzy rather than concrete so that they can be open to things, they say? Or is it that they've experienced a deeper, all-encompassing understanding of life that makes much more sense to them than their history with organized faith ever provided? All they've said is, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. So we don't really know at this point, do we, what they mean by it. I think it all begins with the self, the I in things under consideration. This, this might better be grasped by an example. Let's suppose that someone is raised in a Midwestern state and moved to New York City. The experience changes her. She has culture shock. But she is still the same I that began life in Kansas. Or, suppose I used to be a very conservative person and am now off the scale liberal. There have been, in the meantime, additions and subtractions and changes in my life, but the same I is still there. I is what is uniquely and unchangeably you, me. And it's not altered because of circumstances outside, whether it is tragedy, death of loved ones, famine, war, privilege, whatever. It's the same I. It's the same I, whether I'm a grandfather of four or the son of one another. And this I probably isn't well known, either to yourself or to anyone else. Okay, you get the meaning here of what I'm referring to as I. Some people might want to call this the soul. I don't want to call it the soul. Soul is a term that's loaded up with other stuff, so let's put that aside. The I here is who I am, basically. Not what I'm tagged, labeled, or prejudiced to be. Aspects of me, the labels such as plain-looking, successful, a loser, dominating, shy, not to be trusted, liberal, sexist, good at sports, Republican, mother, good neighbor, skilled in what I do for a living. These all can change, but not the central I. Suppose I change my religion. It's the same I. In the new faith that was there in the former one. Okay, I think we've got it. In other words, we are not defined, I is not defined by who we are 
I mean, by tags and identifiers, concepts of who we are, isms, perceptions, prejudices, these all are accumulated over time and experience, and they come and they go and are dependent often on the one who tags or identifies. And sometimes we do this to ourselves. Now let's take this one step further. It is the I... I'm suggesting that engages spirituality. It is the I that Elijah uses to engage God and understand God as he's even asking God to kill him. And this is true whether I'm a fundamentalist Islamist or whether I'm a fundamentalist Christian. I use what I have collected through experience and education, but it is I who spiritually connects. Let's look at some examples. All these examples are biblical. Let's look at Abraham. Ah, finally Thomas is getting to the scripture. Okay, yeah, we are looking at Abraham. The story of Abraham is the story of a man who is well-to-do, his father is well-to-do, his grandfather has been well-to-do, the tribe prospers, they are very influential, they live in a land that worships another god. Abraham, nor any of his relatives, know anything about Yahweh at all. Somewhere along the line, that got dropped, forgotten, maybe it was never there in Abraham's line. Whatever it is, they're doing well. Their God is providing for them in ways that they think works. Now comes this new God and says to Abraham, I want you to worship me. I want you to follow me. I'm going to give you a land. I'm not going to tell you where it is. Just follow me and I'll take you there. Oh, sure. That's a wonderful idea. But Abraham is grasped by something. And he decides to go. And his wife Sarai. And his nephew Lot. And all of their goods and riches. And the livestock. And the servants. It's quite an entourage that leaves and goes off to who knows where to worship a God that has not been clearly defined yet. Abraham is the original trusting follower of God. Abraham became an example for us of deep spirituality, a spiritual person who caught what God whom he had not known previously, meant. And it made sense to him. It took over his life. Did that happen all the time? No. Did it happen flawlessly for the rest of his life? No. Again, no. Let's look at Paul. Spiritual giant. The spiritual giant without which we probably would not be here today. This is a man who was captured by what Jesus taught and what Jesus meant, which changed his religion and forced him into the world to show others this same spirituality. Paul's ability to keep close to his spirituality has made all the difference in the development of followers of Jesus ever since. Did he do it perfectly? Did he do it all the time? Of course not. And we have ample evidence of that in Paul's own letters. 
Let's look at Mary Magdalene. This is the storied follower of Jesus that gets some bad press a couple hundred years later. And it doesn't matter what her life was about, and especially as described that couple centuries later by people who thought they knew. What matters is that she got what Jesus was saying in a way and a depth that almost no one else did. She followed Jesus because she caught what he was teaching and it made sense to her in ways well beyond intellectual consideration. Did it change her life? Maybe so, maybe not. Did it change who she was? No. The I remained. Did it change her relationship with God? Most probably. As far as she understood it, anyway as far as she comprehended what it meant for her life. Did she behave differently afterwards? Probably also. Love, justice, generosity. These are the areas of change for her and for any of us as well when we grasp what Jesus was teaching. To the extent she could talk about it all, that was her truth the part of her spirituality which she can share with others. That was her truth. Let's look at Judas. Judas was so totally convinced that he was doing the right thing that when he finally realized how wrong he'd been, he killed himself. Pretty drastic. So totally bound up outside his spirituality, Judas didn't see what he'd been tricked by his own devotion to the tags and the labels that he adopted himself. Judas' spirituality became confused with what Judas' desires drove him to do, and he missed the difference between the two until it was too late. Coming to himself once again after the betrayal, the self-revelation was too much for him. But, but, if he hadn't given room to let his spirituality control his life in his early association with Jesus, he never would have become a disciple in the first place, never would have been consumed by what Jesus was teaching, never would have grown into the follower that he originally was. But then he lost it. It's possible. He became passionate about a feature of his belief, which led him to freeze in place while God was on the move. Judas fell victim to confusing his spirituality with his convictions. We do that too. Convictions, the external parts of him, Tags, identifiers, prejudices, labels, what have you, that led him at last even to betray the one he most sought to emulate. Okay. That brings us to Jesus. Yes, we're going to get to Jesus too. The completely spiritual one. The one so in tune with God that he can teach the rest of us how to live because of it. And he does it not with proclamations and description of values, but with parables, stories that engage our imagination, draw us into the telling of them, 
force us to learn and grow a little differently, perhaps, at every encounter, each time we run across them over and over again, new ways to learn the same stuff. That's what spirituality does. It's dynamic. His complete spirituality offers us life, not Jesus himself. You may remember that not one of the parables is about Jesus. They're about life and how God wants us to live it. Okay, lots of examples of spirituality, all of them biblical. A look at the eye, surface-wise involved. A quick glance at our tags and identifiers, labels and prejudices. Uh, We've seen truth illustrated by a lion and a mouse. Um, We have glanced quickly at the prodigy composer, performer Mendelssohn, and finally, Jesus, the perfectly in tune spiritual person, God's revealer most clearly. And now we come back to our little conversation, and the person says to us, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Someone has just said that to you, said it to me. Do they mean all of this? Maybe, maybe not. Are you spiritual all the time? Are you spiritual some of the time? Are you occasionally trapped by your convictions? Your devotion to tags and identifiers, especially the ones that you set up yourself. What is your truth that you tell others? What informs, controls, inspires your whole being and all the time, living decisions, ventures, enjoyments, sexuality, care for others? What is it that whensoever you pay attention to it by observing yourself, observing yourself almost like an outsider and without judgment, what is it that moves you in ways that you never would have come up with on your own? What is it that draws you to new understanding, whether it's from Jesus or in one of the many other ways that God uses to get through to us? What is it that, when considered carefully, steers you away from colossal error, mistake, wrong direction based on tags, identifiers, some of which you concoct yourself? Are you spiritual? Am I spiritual? Or are we, you and I, content merely to be mindlessly, statically, dangerously religious? Religious.